Today's reading is Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, this glorious day. God, this day where, um, where your mercies are new, um, where you reign and rule, you're on your throne, um, where we uh, get to be, uh, you're uh, reminded that we're your beloved children, from whom you never promised to leave nor forsake. And uh, God, I thank you for this uh, little series that we're doing. I thank you for this time of the year. Uh, God, even though it's... Uh, we don't know the exact date that you were, um, that you condescended, that you were born in that manger. God, we have a date that we celebrate and just grateful for that, uh, grateful for this season of, uh, of remembering and uh, anticipating. And God, I pray that uh, as we um, unpack your living and active holy word, God, that you would accomplish the work that you have for each of us. And Lord, might I, I pray as well, just um, Lord, if there's those whom you have brought here this morning or are bringing to us the next couple of weeks in this um, Advent season, God, I pray that you would um, soften hearts uh, to be able to receive your word. I pray that you would um, save people, that they would see their sin and that they would uh, um, repent and believe um, in, the, in uh, Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And all God's people said, amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, today, we're, uh, as Pat might have introduced, we're in our second week of uh, Advent. And um, today, we're um, going to unpack part of chapter 9, verse 6. And I've titled the sermon um, simply, Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Um, it's, it's two of the four uh, names that Isaiah um, describes um, this coming king as. Uh, wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And um, do you, do you, can you relate with this at any level that um, are there days where you feel like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders? Uh, whether that be, um, I have an 85-year-old father that's, uh, my, my dad's turned 85 today, on this day, December 8th. And, um, and I carry that burden around with me because my dad um, doesn't know Jesus. Um, he doesn't know the Father. And, um, and there's nothing I would like more than for him to know the one who created him to be known. There are other burdens that in life that I carry around, whether it be um, hearing about the possibility of, a, of uh, someone having cancer or uh, my wife having an MRI next uh, Friday, um, worry about retirement, worry about money at times. How about you? Like, what are you burdened with this time of year? What do you worry about? Maybe it's big things. Maybe it's small things that are big, big to you right now. Um, you know, whether to um, a teenage, teenager that's wayward, um, wondering how to raise a child in this uh, depraved culture that we live in. Um, what school do I put my kid in? Public, Christian, charter, homeschool. We're all burdened at different times. And as I was thinking through um, Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, and I was just thinking about how um, his um, wonderful counsel and his um, might 
um, is controlling and holding everything together that I really don't have to worry. A song came to mind. And it's a song that um, I haven't sang or heard in a while, I don't think. Um, but I looked up the song and then I looked up the genesis of the song. Before I tell you this song, I'm going to tell you the genesis. It says there was a song written in the early 1900s by a slave whose name will never be known. That man or woman likely experienced more trouble and suffering than any person in the modern age, more than any of us will probably ever experience. He or she was not considered human by society that viewed bondage as a necessary evil. So the writer of this hymn was not in charge of the present and had no control over the future. Do you know that that describes you? That you ultimately have... Um, that you're not in charge of the present and you have no control over the future? It's the case. The slave owner could beat him or her to death and there would be no punishment for the slave owner. Or he could sell him or her at an auction block on a minute's notice. Yet in the face of life with no promise of freedom, this slave found solace in his or her faith. Somehow this Christian still believed that a loving God was in charge and would get him or her through this life and all the way home. Does anybody know what song that is? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. I should have warned you. In his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got itty-bitty babies in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got our leaders and our rulers in his hands. He's got our plans for the present and the future in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Do you believe that this morning? There's times where, um, like theologically and mentally, I believe it. But it's when those big decisions come up. It's when the fear of the future sets in. My mind can start spinning. I'm not taking my thoughts captive, worrying about the future. And this little song, this little song for kids, why is this a kid song? It should be a song for us. He's got the whole world in his hands. Let me ask you, do you feel like you don't have enough power or strength to handle whatever God brings your direction? God's great power and his great presence are available and sufficient for you today. And today we're going to be reminded of God's provision to meet our every need by looking at two of the four names that are used to describe the king in this passage. The two that we're going to look at today are Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. This Advent season, as Pat might have shared, is a season where the church looks back on God's faithfulness to His promises, and we look forward with anticipation to His future promises. We look back at the manger and we remember all that that symbolizes, and we anticipate His coming again to judge the living and the dead, when he's going to finally, once and for all, put away sin and suffering and death. He will return to consummate his kingdom. 
The Bible uses kingdom language to help us understand God's realm. It's helpful, I think. And the best definition that I've heard of of God's kingdom is God's people living in God's place under God's rule. You and I were created to live in God's kingdom. And I would say if you, did, if you missed last Sunday's message, you missed some context. And it's always good to have context when we're opening God's word because the, the particular author who wrote the book is speaking to a particular audience. And the word is for all, all people throughout all time, but it's for a particular audience. But you and I were created, I'm going to review a little bit from last week, we were created to live in a kingdom. And it started in Eden. And we see in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 28, that, that humanity was entrusted with the royal task to subdue and have dominion over all of creation. We know we had our first king and queen, if you will, Adam and Eve. And they failed in this calling. But God, and even in their um, unfaithfulness, in their failure, God promised that a true and better king would come to conquer evil and restore humanity's rule over the earth. And then fast forward to Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 17 where God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that kings shall come from them. And then as we follow that thread of kingship or kingdom throughout God's word, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, where the prophet Nathan, David's friend, said this to David, King David. He said, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers and you die... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But here's the deal. That God's people living in God's place have never lived under God's rule. Not perfectly. We couldn't. They didn't do it. The Israelites didn't do it. A lot of times we want to um, we want to diss on the Israelites. Like, how could they do that? Well, it's the same thing that humanity has been doing um, throughout the ages. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But despite his people's failures, God's covenant with the throne of David still stands. It stood then. It stands now. And as Isaiah um, writes to these rebellious people, God's people, he warns them of impending judgment. He tells them that the Assyrians are coming down from the north, from the north of the Sea of Galilee, the same place that Jesus came in and declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he started his public ministry. And Isaiah told them that there was a Savior coming that would save them from the oppression of the Assyrians. And in Old Testament prophecy, there's a near fulfillment and there is a full, a far fulfillment. And the prophets always understood um, what they were talking about when they talked about the near fulfillment. But I don't think Isaiah and the other prophets understood fully what was coming and what was uh, what what was being promised. And if you want to know what the Old Testament is talking about, you look at the New Testament. There's a saying that what the Old Testament conceals, the New Testament what? It reveals. It reveals. Last week we looked at um, chapter 8, I think starting in verse 21, and went all the way through the end of um, 
verse 7 and Isaiah 9, just kind of at a high level. But last week in verse 4, when Isaiah prophesied victory over Israel's enemies, he said this in verse 4. He said, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. What he's telling the Israelites is that their burden is going to come to an end, that their oppressors are going to be conquered. And he said that that it's going to happen as on the day of Midian. And this is important. That's why I'm revisiting it again, is what happened to the Midianites? What happened on the day of Midian? You go back to Judges chapter 7. You remember this guy named Gideon, the fleece guy. God told Gideon that he, him and his army would defeat the mighty Midianites who wanted to wipe out Israel. And so Midian goes, okay, I guess I'm going to defeat the Midianites. And he had 32,000 people in his army. And God said, not so fast. Only bring 22,000 with you. And then God said, not so fast. I only want you to bring 10,000 with you. And God said, no, wait. I want you to bring 300 men. Send everybody else home. And Gideon had to be shaken in his boots, like, how is um, 300 men going to defeat the mightiest army on the planet at that time? God's strategy was an audacious bluff. In the sense that, that Gideon and his men did defeat the Midianites, but not in the way that Gideon thought. Gideon and his army of 300 never drew a sword. They never pulled out a spear. What they did is they blew trumpets, they broke jars, and they held up torches. And the Midianites, um, in a panic, ran around in circles with swords out, and they slaughtered themselves. Our liberating king, Jesus, the one whose birthday that we celebrate, the one who we remember, the one that we're looking back to, he came not only to def- he came to defeat all the forces of evil, sin and Satan and death. Isaiah is looking ahead to a liberator even better than Gideon, who will also come in the most unexpected way to conquer our mortal enemies. This king will be born poor and homeless. Yes, he will be of the lineage of David, but he will be not be born in a palace. He will not be born with riches. He will be born homeless and in poverty. And he would be fully God and he would be fully human. Unto us, verse 6, a child is born, a son is given. A child is born unto us. God tells, a child tells God's people who are waiting for the heir of King David that he's on his way. A child from the lineage of David is on his way. And he will, he will fulfill God's covenant promise that this child is literally from David's seed. And this child will be fully human. He'll be born of a woman. Our Savior King must be truly human so that he might on our behalf perfectly obey the entire law and become our substitute and suffer the punishment of human sin. You see, every human being, if you're here today and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you think that you're a pretty good person, and you probably are, it's not going to get you anywhere. 
Because God's word tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That Jesus needed to come um, in human form to live the perfect life that you and I, fellow humans, could not live. A child is born, one who is fully human and one who is born of a woman. Fully human, born of a woman. A son is given. I'm, I'm looking at this. I mean, how many times do you think this right now in your head? Answer the question, why does it say a son is given? Who's well, a boy, right? My grandson is a boy. He's my son's son. We can say that Jesus is male, therefore he's a son, but we're told that a son is given, not so that we know that the child is a boy, but so that we know he is God, that he is divine, that he is the eternal son of God, one with the Father. Our Redeemer had to be truly God. He had to be truly human, and he had to be truly God, because our sin was committed only against God. And only God can forgive sin. Jesus got himself in trouble with the Pharisees by going around and forgiving sin. And the Pharisees knew, like, we need to kill this guy because he's saying that he's God. Because only God can forgive sin. Jesus needed to be fully human in order to be our substitute. And he needed to be fully God in order for his obedience and his suffering to be a perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's perfect justice. And John lays out this incredible tr truth in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything made that was made. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh. We know who the Word is. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This baby, this Son, is fully God. Excuse me, fully, fully human and truly God. Unto us a child is born, and a son is given. Not, not unto Mary and Joseph. Yeah, Mary mothered him. But unto you, unto me, a child was born, a son was given. In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, the shepherds in the night, an angel appeared to them, and, he's, and the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you, they had to be going, what do you mean unto me? Unto you this day in the city of David, uh, a Savior who is Christ the Lord is born unto you. This is for you. This is, this is for us, but this is for you. That you needed a Savior. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son so that we would not perish but have eternal life. The eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, was given to you and I so that we would have eternal life, not just in, in quantity. The reason Jesus came is not just to um, allow us to live forever, but to be able to experience the eternal life. The one who created us for a relationship with Himself. Unto us, a child is born. 
a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The one given is a king. He's our king. And kings historically stood in God's place to lead and protect and rule his people. But all prior kings were imperfect, and they failed, or they were overthrown. This king will not be overthrown. This king will not fail. This king uh, will meet your every need. He is sovereign over everything. It's when I was thinking about the government, when I was literally um, thinking about him governing the entire world and it all being upon his shoulders, it's when I thought of the song. He's got the whole world in his hands. And just kind of a crazy way through a song, I just had a peace come over me. Like, like stop striving. Stop worrying. Stop trying to make things happen. He's got the whole world in his hands. This king is perfect and wise in his teachings. He's perfect and wise in his governing. Not only um, the governing of the universe, but the governing and ruling and leading and guiding you and I personally. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And these are all aspects of his character. They describe who he is and what he has come to do for his children. These are not for the world. These are for those in the world who are to believe in him. You see, he is not, um, Stephen Atherton is kind of doing our Facebook thing and doing a good job with it. And he posted that, um, that picture with the king, with a crown on it that says unto us, a child is born, a son is given. And um, we've gotten three posts on there uh, from people that have basically in different ways said that's a bunch of, of garbage. And one of them actually this morning, thankfully I saw it, actually put a profane profane, uh, picture up there. Um, These are people that that don't make me mad at all, quite honestly. They grieve me. Um, This, that that there um, there is no wonderful counselor. There is no mighty God. There is no everlasting father. And there is no prince of peace for those who are outside of putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I want to know who these, I guess I actually do because they're on our Facebook. I'd like, I'd like to reach out to them and love on them and, and encourage them to um, embrace the God who created them to be loved. But these, these four names are aspects of his character who describe who he is and what he has come to do for his children. Now, even for people that aren't his children now, um, nobody's out, nobody is, uh, is beyond his saving right arm. Handel, and Handel's Messiah, is right in his song to emphasize the word wonderful to describe God. Wonderful, I had an English teacher come up to me after this uh, first service um, and told me that I can't say what I'm going to say right now. And the first time in my life, I told her, you're wrong. So we'll see what happens. Wonderful here is a noun. Yes. Counselor is the verb. Noun describes who God is. When the child is called wonderful, it is the most precise word for deity. 
He is God. He is divine. This word sets the tone for the rest of the passage. We use wonderful for whatever we, like I use wonderful all the time. I had wonderful Mexican food yesterday. It's giving me a wonderful stomachache today. I get to spend time with my wonderful bride on Mondays. It's our day off. I get to do this with this wonderful church. It's good. It's a good use of the word. But wonderful is what it means here is indescribable, miraculous, set apart. This, um, I didn't put it in my notes, but if you go to Judges 13, you don't need to go there. You can make a note of it if you want to look at it. But this, uh, the prophet Daniel's parents, um, the mom was barren. And the angel of the Lord came to her and said that you're going to have a son. Kind of a Sarah type moment. And, um, and she believed the Lord, I guess, unlike Sarah. And her husband, Daniel's future father, said this to the angel of the Lord. His name is Manoah. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, that we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask me my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock of the Lord to the one, who's, the one who works wonders. So wonderful is a wonder worker. He's a God of miracles. He's a God whose um, attributes are indescribable. The psalmist says this in Psalm 78, describing God's people. It could be said about us at times, I'm sure. They forgot his works and wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. The wonderful one. The wonderful, miracle-performing, promise-keeping God is present and active in his creation. He's not just the God most high. He is the God most nigh. He is working uh, miracles and keeping his promises, and he's active with you and I, his children. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And we know what a counselor is. A counselor is someone who gives advice or therapy, one who helps us make wise plans. We need counselors. We all need human counselors. God's word tells us that there's wisdom and safety in an abundance of human counselors. When I see, um, especially younger people, um, making decisions on their own without consulting anybody, um, I go, man, that, they're going to get their tails. I mean, they're going to get. They're going to learn by mistakes. It doesn't mean that getting counsel is going to avoid the mistakes, 
But God talks about that all the time in, his, in, in the Word, that there is um, wisdom and safety and protection in many counselors. Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors there is safety. Um, Fifteen twenty two, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. And even great rulers and leaders need counselors. I would never want any president to be in the White House or any leader without counselors around him. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. So kings, like presidents, have the primary job of guiding and directing and protecting the people under their authority. They're supposed to make decisions for the benefit of the kingdom and its people as a whole. But since they're wisdom, since, excuse me, since they're human, they have limited wisdom. They have limited insight. They have limited vision. Therefore, they have counsels. And they have counselors to advise them. This child, this son, is an exception. He holds all wisdom and knowledge. He knows the end and the path to get there. He is a better counselor. Listen to what Spurgeon has to say. Well, you may have a friend that talks very sweetly with you, and you will say, well, he is kind and a good soul, but I really can't trust his judgment. You have another friend who has a good deal of judgment, yet you say to him, certainly he is a man of prudence above a great many, but I cannot find out his sympathy. I never get at his heart. If he were ever so rough and untutored, I would sooner have his heart without his prudence than his prudence without his heart. But we go to Christ, and we get wisdom, we get love, we get sympathy, we get everything that can possibly be wanted in a counselor. He is wonderful counselor, and his counsel is available to his children 24-7. There are no office hours, and he has the answers to life's greatest questions. He has the answers to all of our whys. He has a plan for you and I that stems to eternity past and stretches to eternity future. This counselor doesn't have you fill out a questionnaire to get to know you and diagnose your problems and questions. When we do marriage counseling, when we do other types of counseling, I have a questionnaire. I want to know like, where, like what's going on in your life. I want to know areas of sin. I want to know areas of victory. That's what a good human counselor does. They don't just start dishing out advice without even knowing what the problems are. The wonderful counselor doesn't need a questionnaire. He formed you, and he knows you better than you know yourself. This is lengthy, but it's, it's, it's important. Psalm 139, 116. No one knows you better than the one who created you. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Wonderful. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Is that awesome? Our comfort rests not in the consistency of human leaders. Our comfort rests not in the consistency of human pastors or, or human counselors, but in the wisdom of the one who created us and knows us. And let me just say something here. We all need counselors. We all need counselors. And we have a practice in this church, and it's a ton of work, is that we, uh, we try not to send people out to um, counselors outside this church. And let me tell you why. There's very few counselors that, that lead and stand on the living and active Word of God. There's very few counselors that point their patience to the wonderful counselor. There are, we all need counselors. Do you hear me saying that? We all need counselors. But can I urge you this morning that if you are going to a counselor outside of somebody in this body, and they're not a Christian counselor, and here's how you know a Christian counselor, they don't have a fish, it's not just a fish on their door. It's not just an ad in the Christian business publication. Those aren't bad. But it's when you go in there, on that questionnaire, they want to know who Jesus is to you. They want to understand what you're believing, whether it be truth or lies. And can I tell you that if, that if you are um, with a counselor in this church or outside this church, that does not feed you the living and active word of God, please, I beg you, find another counselor. Find another counselor. And it's not to say that um, non-Christian counselors um, haven't been endowed at some level um, with great minds and good hearts by a sovereign God. But at the end of the day, there is no lasting change unless it is by the hand of the everlasting and living God. So how do you know if you're getting good counsel? How do you know if it's bad counsel? Anything that goes against God's word, it's bad counsel. And I understand there's gray areas, but if it's gray, it it means it doesn't go against God's word. Anything that goes against God's word is bad counsel. 
I want you to listen to what Spurgeon has to say again about the sweetness of God's counsel, particularly in trials. Because after all, when we need counsel, whether it be in our marriage, whether it be in our parenting, whether it be just getting a healing from a messed up, jacked up childhood, it's all, it all involves, involves a trial that we need healing from. Spurgeon said this, Christian, do you know what sweet counsel is? You have gone to your master in the day of trouble, and in the secret of your chamber you have poured out your heart before him. You have laid your case before him with all of its difficulties, and you have felt that though Christ was not there in flesh and blood, yet he was there in spirit, and he counseled you. Have you been there? You felt that his was counsel that came from the very heart, but he was something better than that. There was such a sweetness coming from his, with his counsel, such a radiance of love, such a fullness of fellowship that you said, oh, that I were in trouble every day. If I might have such sweet counsel as this. Christ is a counselor whom I desire to consult every hour. And I would that I could sit in his secret chamber all day and all night long because to counsel with him is to have sweet counsel, hearty counsel, and wise counsel all at the same time. There's a lot of hard things that come to us in life. We may never get the answer fully as to why he allowed that calamity to strike us, whatever it is. But we know that in the storms, we will always have him. God's eyes never leave the righteous, the ones whom he has made righteous. He will deliver us in our affliction and out of our affliction. In the book of Job, the 42 chapters of this gut-wrenching book of Job, where, where Job questioned God all throughout it in the same way that we would question God. Like, God, why did you do this? Why did you allow this in my life? And he dialogues back and forth with his three friends and then with another friend by the name of Biliad. Anybody named their son Biliad? He's actually, he's actually a pretty good guy. And he wrestles with God. And at the very end of Job, in chapter 42, verse 5. Now keep in mind, Job was a believer. There's no doubt in my mind, he was a believer. Job said this to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And what he's saying is, is that God, I know now, through this storm, that you were with me every step in the storm. And I heard of you that you were a good and gracious and just God, but now I have seen you and I've experienced you in the storm. You see, this is a wonderful counselor that we can throw ourselves at. There is healing and wholeness in this counselor. He has a wonderful plan, but that's not enough. He has the power and the might to accomplish whatever plan he sets forth. He's not only the wonderful counselor, but he is also our mighty God. 
He can do whatever he pleases without difficulty or resistance. He cannot be checked. He cannot be restrained. His plans cannot be frustrated. And this guy by the name of Stephen Sharnock, I hope he's solid because I'm going to quote him. He came from a good book, and the quote is solid. How worthless his eternal counsels would be if his power could not execute them. His mercy would be a feeble pity if he were destitute of power to relieve. His justice a slighted scarecrow without power to punish. And his promises an empty sound without the strength to accomplish them. And I want to highlight three areas of his might before we close off. His might in sanctification. His might in creation. And his might in salvation. Sanctification, that big word simply means the work that God started in us at salvation when he made us a new creation. All the way through, we're face to face with him in glory where there's no more sin, no more suffering, and no more death. That's sanctification. And he is mighty in sanctification. Philippians 1.6 says that I'm sure of this, that he who began a, good work, began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That if you know Jesus, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Peter says it another way. He says that you've been born again to what? A living hope. To an inheritance that is undefiled. It will not perish. It will never fade. And guess what? It's being kept for you in heaven. And here, you're being guarded for it. And our inheritance, ultimately, is Jesus in the flesh, whom we will dwell with for all of eternity, where there'll be no sin or suffering or death. He's mighty in sanctification. He'll carry you all the way through. Second Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Nothing's missing. He's mighty in creation. When God exercises His power, He does it effortlessly. One commentator said it's no more difficult for Him to create a universe than it is for Him to create a flower. A.W. Tozer said this about Him being mighty in creation. Since he has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for renewal of strength. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. Can you imagine just for a second what would happen if God were to relinquish his sustaining power of creation? Not, not just his might in creating things, but his might in sustaining his creation. If he stopped maintaining the law of gravity, we wouldn't be able to stay on the earth and we would probably die. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it was closer to the earth, we would burn up. If it was further away, we would freeze. The earth is tilted on its axis exactly 23 degrees. That enables us to have four seasons. If it tilted even a fraction of a degree, it would have disastrous effects. If the moon didn't remain a specific distance from the earth, the ocean tide would completely inundate the land twice a day. 
If the ocean floor merely slipped a few feet deeper, the carbon monoxide and oxygen balance in the Earth's atmosphere would be completely upset. And no vegetable or animal life could exist on Earth. That he is mighty to create and he's mighty to sustain his creation. He upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. And then finally, he's mighty in salvation. And brothers and sisters, this brings me so much hope. It brings me so much hope even on the 85th birthday of my father today. It brings me so much hope for the three people that posted on Facebook. You see, God doesn't, it doesn't matter um, how many years you lived away from him. It doesn't matter how many years um, you uh, profess to be an atheist. That he is mighty to, to, to display. And his mighty saving work, redemption, if you will, was, in great, was a greater display of his power than creation. Creation apparently had no opposition. But at redemption, the devil had to be subdued. Subdued. The death, death had to be conquered and sin had to be dealt with. And let me remind you of Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, if you, felt, feel, if you feel like you had anything to do with your salvation. And to be also reminded that there's hope for your loved ones at any age, no matter what they believe, there's hope for their salvation. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespass, in your trespasses and sins. That means dead. No heartbeat. You weren't chasing after God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? This is cliche, but let me finish with this. Where God leads, he provides. If God brings you to it, He's going to bring you through it all the way. And I just saw this recently. God never leads us into a storm that he doesn't give us the power to overcome. Doesn't mean the storm's going to get over. Jesus says that in this trouble, in this world will be, will be trouble, right? It says, take heart. Take heart. I've overcome the world. And I'm going to close with this. Um, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We've got a job to do. The first job is just, is just resting and believing that God is who he said he is. Not fretting. But the reason that you and I have been left on this planet, if you know Jesus, is to um, obey his counsel by his power and go and make disciples. Matthew 28, you know the verse, and Jesus came to them, to his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the king. 
You're my people living in my place under my rule, my good and loving rule. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always. He's not going to leave us alone. He's with us always to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for this uh, glorious time of year. Thank you, God, that you are wonderful. Uh, that no words can describe you. I thank you that you are a wonderful counselor. That you know the beginning and the end. That you know what um, ails each of us right now. That you know the lies that we're believing that Satan is feeding us. And you know the truth of your word that we're having a hard time swallowing. But God, I, pr I pray that you would enable us uh, during this season that would carry forward into 2020. That we'd be, re we'd be reminded of your, faithful, your faithfulness to your promise. To bring forth a um, serpent crusher through the seed of Eve that flowed through the seed of Abraham and David all the way through and brought forth a child, a son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and took our place, became our substitute, and died the death that we should have died. So God, thank you for your spirit, the counselor that indwells us, that has sealed us, that empowers us to understand the truth, to live out the truth, and that will keep us all the way home. And God, I pray that we would not just hold these glorious truths for ourselves, but that we would obey your command to go and make disciples of all nations and teach them to observe all that you had taught. We love you. We thank you that you loved us more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's close our service.